Russell Fugit is a Trinity College alumni, and he graduated in 2001. During his time at Trinity, he held the position of Student Government Association president for about three years. In addition, at the end of Russell's freshman year, he was elected as vice president of the Multicultural Affairs Office. When I was first doing initial research on the topic of radicalism at Trinity, particularly student radicalism, I came across an open letter to the president, trustees, and faculty of Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut by Russell Fugit. What I found from this article was a detailed account of Russell's experiences with protesting at Trinity, and it appeared that he had organized some protests himself, so I thought it would be a really good idea to try to get in contact with Russell and hopefully interview him one-on-one -on -one about his experiences with protesting. Hello? Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Hey, Olivia, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for meeting with me. I appreciate it. So I read your blog and I thought you would be a really good like past student perspective on student radicalism at Trinity. So my first question is what has, um, what events of student-based radicalism at Trinity do you remember or have you been involved in? Well, it was a, it was a year long process. And you know, in the beginning of the, you know, the protest was in April. So you think about the academic year, I, I kind of had an inkling that some kind of um, social action or demonstration mm -hmm. would be necessary to achieve what I what I wanted to achieve, and what as the year went on became more evident that that you know needed to happen that a lot of students felt should happen, a lot of faculty um, needed thought needed to happen. So there were certainly a number of faculty who advised me. Um, Eugene Leach, who I think is retired, um, I think yeah. Dario Ivake is still there. Um, Jerry Watts, American Studies. Um, he's he's no he left Trinity and he since passed away. He was my advisor. Um, Maurice Wade, who recently retired from Trinity. Um, Cheryl Greenberg. In his blog, Russell says that quote sometimes he would spend whole evenings emailing college administrators, engaging in arguments as to why there needed to be more funding for the Office of Multicultural Affairs and Cultural Spaces. Unquote. It seemed Russell would spend a great deal of his time debating that students should have the right and the ability in partnership with the college, quote, to have self-determination over the use of the Emoja House as well as the LVL and AASA houses, similar to the privileges that white fraternities enjoyed, unquote. From this quote, we can see a clear double standard in the way certain houses were granted privileges over other houses. There was a, a committee um, called the Priorities and Planning Committee, and I think I mentioned it in my blog. And at the time, if you understand the context of training at the time, there was a lot of construction. So President Evan Dobell, um, he had borrowed a lot of money. <laughs> and the trustees supported it. I think in hindsight, the trustees came to regret it, but they built a lot. So when I got there, the, what, the Vernon Center, which I don't know what they, they, they changed the name three times in 20 years. It used to be called the Vernon Social Center. You know, it's right in front of... Um, yeah. Of high rise. Right. Um, that's where the Emoja House used to be, and they moved it. They opened that opened. Um, I think in September. Yeah, right. It opened. They had a big, we had a big party like the first weekend I was a freshman. I lived the North Campus, so it was like a huge event, and it was a Vernon Social Center. It was a basic big, you know, event space, party space, really. And they had concerts, other events there sometimes. I've talked to other alum, and oh no, who were who came after me, who I who I like create. You no, know, when I tell them some of the things used to happen. 
what the social culture was or you know a shock on a number of levels and the, the level the amount of alcohol that was served and yeah. um, certainly um, was was is one of them but um, so you know that, that they built that building um, over the time I was there I remember I think it was my sophomore, my, my I was president, so my junior or senior year, they were they added a whole wing to the library. The, the Paul Rayther, who was on the board of trustees, and his daughter actually graduated with me. Um, they they were building that wing of the library. Um, so they and what else? They, I mean, they were building. There was a lot of construction. They redid the little long walk. Um, so there was a lot of that going on. So they had anyway. They had this priority and planning committee, and there was money and funds, and you know they were so not only were they talking about planning in terms of like the physical plan but also in terms of like okay what is our staff and administration going to look like in the future of the school month there were these five points that came out of that committee of faculty that specifically said what kind of funding the multicultural students uh, office multicultural affairs office should have funding staffing um there was other things in there about the uh, curriculum i believe i don't i don't have a copy of those and i don't know if there's anywhere and maybe somewhere some faculty archive would have a copy of what those were. Maybe a professor at Ake is still around or Cheryl Greenberg is still around. They might yeah. have it. Um, okay. um, this is going to be 1999, 2000, around right. that time frame. Um, 98, 99, 2000. So we did have like some backing. So we had like that faculty committee. Um, you know, we had and then the students. Obviously, we had our experience and understanding of what we wanted to see happen. And the multicultural affairs office, up until that point, really had no power or authority to do anything. Um, and we saw a lot of need for change and for more resource to support um, you know students of color on campus. And so um, that certainly dro- drove us. So we definitely had faculty support very tangibly. So because they had, the, this PPC committee had voted and approved these five points, so I really used that as a baseline. So not only it wasn't just me as a 19 year old telling these administrators, this is what. The students need. I had I had foundation and, and faculty and in a basic understanding and fundamentals of how the school worked, which really wasn't difficult to ascertain um, because the school is so small. Um, I was able to you know figure figure some things out pretty quickly about how to how to make things happen and, and knew how to get in front of people right. um, yeah. and get on you know in, in terms of scheduling meetings and sometimes just knowing where to find administrators in in. Uh, Talking to them or reminding them or handing them, I would type up a piece of type up a letter and write hand it to them. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of email was new. I didn't have an email account, so I got to Trinity, right? So email was like a new thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to remember, you know, the times it, it was where like I literally would type a letter up and hand it. You know, uh, I'd sneak into the faculty dining hall and hand it to people. Yeah. Like I did, I did a lot of stuff. Um, and I know they got tired of me being in their faces. So um, I hope that answers your question, but that was certainly yeah. part of the, the impetus of what we were able to do was that it was grounded in, you know, again, a faculty committee that had approved, like, this is that I made recommendations and voted on these are certain things that need to happen. It wasn't just, we didn't just make it up. Right. So when you were protesting, like, would you hand a piece of paper, like, with your, like, five lists of things you wanted to get done to We only had one protest. It was just yeah. that one I wrote about on right. April. That one. The date was in 1999. Yeah. Um, we had, the week before, we had published a mail letter in the tripod. On April 13th, 1999, there was an article in the Trinity Tripod called Letters to the Editor, an open letter to the president from MAC reps. It goes as follows, quote, To President Dobell, we the Trinity College Multicultural Affairs Council remain disgusted with the state of diversity on the Trinity College campus, unquote. 
The first demand that President Dobell received was, one, a review of the hiring process for professors William Hank Lewis and Haya Park. These professors were invaluable resources for the Trinity College community, and although they were a great presence on campus, they had not received permanent positions at Trinity. As such, the Multicultural Affairs Council wanted to wanted a detailed written explanation as to what the, the qualifications for hiring were at Trinity, as well as a specific review of the cases concerning these two professors. The second demand was the retention of students of color. Quote, we are losing countless students of color each year. The most recent retention statistics demonstrate a disproportionate number of students of color who are required to withdraw. This is an alarming statistic and can no longer be accepted. Unquote. The third demand was the programming concerning multicultural students. In the article, it said, given that last semester's retention, as well as a number of well-documented racial incidences on, camp on campus, there was need for more diversified programming. The fourth demand was cultural houses. For this demand, the Multicultural Affairs Council wanted to hire an architect for the construction of the cultural houses of AASA, LVL, and Hillel. The fifth and final demand was alumni relations. In this area, the Multicultural Affairs Council wanted Trinity to make a concerted effort to reach out to alumni students of color in the Asian American and Latino alumni communities to aid the establishment of alumni organizations. A lot of times what I would do subsequently is after we'd have meetings with President Dobell and I think Ron Thomas was like his assistant who later became the interim dean of faculty, if I'm not mistaken. I would write the notes of, I would go on, I had written notes in the meeting and then I would type up what had happened. Or if I had a phone conversation, I'd write up what had happened and I would either send them an email or I'd hand them up, give them a letter to document every conversation. So just, right. you know, just so I confirm, you we, you asked me this and I said this and we agreed on this, right? And I would just document what we were talking about. And I know it was very off-putting to them. I know they thought it was it was a radical one. I can't remember who, who what faculty member taught me that approach. But they taught me, you know, I, I come from a family, my parents are lawyers, like my, my brother and sister, yeah. I'm the oldest. They're, they're, I'm the only one that's not a lawyer. So I understand, like, document everything. And so it wasn't very, when a faculty member re recommended I do this, because the idea was, the concern was that they would say one thing and to me in private and then say one thing in public and then try to discredit me. Right. Um, and that may be kind of hard to imagine in that kind of environment, but I, I became, my profile on campus became that high where like if they could discredit me, they could like shut a lot, shut a lot of things down. And so in order for me to document everything that was happening, I would send an email and I would make, write a letter and I'd give it to them. Like, this is what we say. If something's, you know, if anything's incorrect, please clarify it. So. I was really determined to hold them accountable for what they said, because they were saying you know, certain things, but then things weren't happening, things weren't moving quick. Additionally, the administration seemed to be ignorant and not doing anything about these demands that Russell put forth. Um, and, and I know at points it became probably they thought it was just me, Russell Fugit, harassing, and that's why the protest demonstrated it wasn't just me that believed these things. I had a, a core group of students who believe that there need to be change and need to be something, yeah. uh, some, some resources directed towards our community, towards cultural houses, changes in the curriculum, uh, addressing issues in terms of retention and everything else that we had laid out. So, A sense of unity appeared on campus and a list of demands were made 
And then Russell and everyone else, all of the other students, gave President Evan Dobell a week to provide, quote, a comprehensive response we knew almost certainly wouldn't come, unquote. As such, the protest was planned for April 15, 1999. Russell said his march on April 15, 1999 went successfully. As a result of this march, there were two new cultural houses for LVL and AASA. Additionally, there was increased funding for the Office of Multicultural Affairs, and even the, and there would even be a full dean with an adequate amount of staff. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering if you received any sort of pushback from, like, faculty or the administrators and what that was. Um, I've been hearing rumblings of, like, faculty not being happy about, you know, about um, what we were pushing for, some, some faculty. Um... In terms of in terms of the multicultural stuff, I mean, later on we, we tried to change that. When I was president of SGA, we tried to change the academic calendar. Then there were some faculty who were my allies during the protests in 1999 who were not happy with me a year later that we were trying to add add uh, school days to the academic calendar. Yeah. And so, which I you know, I understood. Um, I thought they were unprofessional because they were bad mouthing me to other students in classes. You know, which that wasn't in. I'm like, why would you know? So I, I had a problem with that um, yeah. when I would hear about those things, but. I, I didn't. I didn't ever directly address it, but it was. It was. It was kind of crazy. Like I'm a 20 year old kid <laughs> advocating for more class days. You want more. You want students who are more rigorous and more into the academics. We're asking for two more days in the academic calendar. And you're gonna badmouth me about it, like you know. Right. So it just you know I kind of let it let it be what it was um, when when that would happen. But in terms of the multicultural pros, I know I know some people weren't you know. I mean, there were faculty. You have to understand, Olivia. There were faculty who taught me in the political science department. When the Women's Studies Center celebrated like 20 or 25 years, they put a picture up. And I can't, one of the faculty, I can't remember his name, who had taught me was in the picture protesting against Trinity becoming co-ed. Wow. So you have to think about yeah. those faculty were still on campus. So you think they didn't want women on campus. They didn't want black and Latino and Asian students yeah. asking for more resources. Or like, I, you know, so, you know, I think it, it wasn't it wasn't blatant, but you you would hear that there were certain folks who who, who weren't happy. Um, I know the president always wasn't happy because I was in the newspaper and the faculty and the, and the staff took the Trinity tripod way more seriously than the students did. So it's always funny when like the tripod would write their opinion about what was going on. I'd write an opinion piece, and they were like, I would I might email the next day. We're like, we need to meet, we need to talk. They would make them so like nervous and anxious because I said something to tripod. Most students didn't even read it. You know? <laughs> right. So, so when I learned that, I used it to my advantage. I knew I could get their attention because they were going to read it. <laughs> yeah. Know? So yeah. Um, I could say, you know, say stuff, and then they, you know, I would get, I could get responses. So, mm-hmm. um, no, it was interesting. The process was very slow. Um, do you think it was a success? Your protest? It absolutely was. I think the protest changed the dynamic. Where again, people put, tried to isolate isolate me. They thought it was just me saying all these things. Because I, I would often, because I was vice president of multicultural affairs councils, I would always, I would regularly be meeting with um, Sharon Hersberger, who was like the dean, the head of, the director of student affairs, I think her title was. And then I would meet with some of the deans. Um, and occasionally I'd meet with the president. Sometimes if someone was in a tripod, I remember times, you know, President Nobel calling me you know, in my dorm room. And we didn't have cell, I didn't have a cell phone at the time, quite yeah. before that, um, because he was concerned about what I wrote in the tripod. So, um, he was trying to isolate me. And I think up in, I'd written letters and emails and letters and we put stuff in the, tr- the tripod 
and they really thought it was it was just me, and then they might have thought it was just me and like a handful of like five or ten other students. Yeah. But then when we showed up, like I seen a picture with 200, 300 people at the president's office. Right. It, they had to realize, oh, it wasn't just Russell. And even if it was, I had convinced all these people that it was something to protest about. Yeah. We, all, we all were black, right? That we all, you know. So that changed the dynamic, and I'm sure it probably embarrassed them a little bit because they didn't know it was coming until like an hour or two before it happened. Right. We, we ticked them off inadvertently, but at that point we were doing it, so it didn't, didn't change anything. Um, but he, I give, I always give Bill Bell credit because he responded. He did everything. So we ended up, you know, getting the cultural houses. Ended up forming a committee to, to support, better support students of color to, for retention purposes. Um, and they, they took, they, they funded and staffed the office in a, in a way more close to what we were asking for, the multicultural affairs office. So the one thing they couldn't do, you know, which I wrote in my piece, was they couldn't make the faculty. Because that was the excuse they gave. We can't make the faculty, you know, change the, the requirements. The faculty do that themselves. And so. Um, I give Bill Bell credit. Once he realized, you know, there was something bubbling up, he, he definitely, you know, moved pretty quickly. You know, in the following months, so that by September, the two cultural houses were there, and the dean and the funding was there, and, and the retention committee was set up. So by the following fall, like he responded, and and the, the school responded, and made the change that a lot of the changes we had asked for. So. Yeah. And they were quicker in the future of addressing racist issues. I remember right before I graduated, someone painted, took a chalk and drew a huge swastika on a tennis court. I don't know if the tennis court still exists, like kind of behind the library, like walking towards the gym. There was a tennis court, right? I don't know if it's still there or not. And then somebody drew a huge, like a corpse-wide, like you know, swastika. I remember it, we saw it and we had a big, like immediately there was a gathering, there was a visual, and I was, you know, like, and the school and administration was a part of it, that we're not gonna stand for this intolerance, right? So. The school was better about quick, more quickly, like responding to these instances because we had experienced them, um, and you know people would do stuff on, on whiteboards and it would never get become a big deal, but it would keep happening. Um, and then people would experience the micro, some of the microaggressions that I wrote about, you know, Asian students being said, told certain things in public, and, and nothing would get done about it. Wouldn't it wouldn't be addressed? And so that the school, I think, got more aware and sensitive that these things are happening and that they had to be responsive, right? So yeah. I think a lot, you know, a lot of good came out of it. And I'm wondering if you think um, if these issues that you were protesting like are like still appear on campus today. Now, I read the articles that I linked to in the New York Times and other publications over yeah. the years about saying how the climate at Trinity was, was, was still very racist and there were still challenges. On December 18th, 2006, an article called An Inward Look at Racial Tension at Trinity College from the New York Times was published by Winnie Who. A black student had said to the then president of Trinity College, James F. Jones Jr., that the president always ate lunch on the side of the dining hall where white students would gather. In this article, it was also said that, quote, two minority women have reported that racial slurs were scribbled on message boards outside their, dome, outside their dorms since October. Another student who was white painted himself black for a Halloween fraternity party and then proceeded to post pictures that turned many minority students had detailed their experience at Trinity as feeling unwelcomed and discriminated against. In the article, it was also said that some black students were almost always stopped at the campus library and asked to show identification while their white peers were just able to walk in the library. Even one Hispanic professor was mistaken for a janitor. 
Um, I hope it's better. I have to believe and think it's better. I, yeah. you know, I know there's been a lot recently. We're probably going back five, six, seven, eight years about Greek life on campus mm-hmm. and the impact that's had on social life. Yeah. Um, I know I'm also very aware, and I, I exchanged emails with um, President Berber Sweeney a year ago. Um, I wasn't pleased with the outcome of our exchange, um, or didn't feel like it ever got completed because at some point, at one point, she stopped responding to me, but um, pretty quickly. Um, but you know, I, I, I as student government president for two years, there was I understood a lot about the, how sexual assault and, and rape on campus was pervasive. Yeah. Um, and and it's clear to me also that that has not gone addressed properly or it still needs to be addressed. So I'm just curious what Burger Sweeney, what President Burger Sweeney like said to you when you, did you address her about like the sexual assault and rape on campus? I refer to it. I, I, I've, uh, I've wondered if that ended the conversation because I mentioned it in an email to her. Um, she was, she emailed me and she asked, how can we work together? So I responded and sent her some suggestions. I'm trying to remember, and then I think, and then she never she never responded. But in the email, you know, I mentioned um, the school needs to make an apology. In my article, I alluded to you know you, you need to dig the well before you need the water. Right. And so not only to students of color, but to so many women who've been sexually assaulted at Trinity College, they want to leave Trinity and not come back. Say so, yeah, I, I don't know how. The Trinity addresses and, that, and there's a, the, the whole thing about around Greek life and the culture around Greek life, you know. Yeah. I've, 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 you know, and that's when I was the, as when I was the ending my time as student government president. That's one thing I tried to, to fix, but I was no one. The Greek life didn't want to change, right? And the school uh, didn't want to change. And most of the wealthy trustees at the time, I don't know if it's still the case, were men who came out of SIU and AD and gave wrote big checks. Right. So there was no yeah. there was no motivation for anybody to change this culture. How do you change that? Like, how does one go about changing that culture, do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of fraternities, you know, of ending and, uh, yeah. and uh, you know, making those those houses uh, university spaces for other things, whether they're dorms or, um, you know, community living spaces, you know, living and learning spaces, I think was a term we used 20 years ago. They still use a living and learning term now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Amherst has got rid of fraternities. And from what I've understood, they got rid of fraternities a long time ago. Yeah. And fraternity houses. And from what I understand, the culture there is much better. Right. So I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. There are a lot of alum who give money who, who would, would revolt at that, I know. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the only solution to, to change, is to change the culture, to shift that culture of, of Greek life on Vernon Street, is to, is to end it. Yeah. And I know, I'm sure some people will continue underground and all that, but, you know, short of that, how do you break, how do you break a, a you know, 100, 200 year tradition? Right. And so when you were a student, did, you said you tried to, um, like your friends would come to you to try to end it, right? Like to end. Well, I had young ladies who were assaulted who came to me. Right. And then one of the things, I, and I have a big recollection, I don't know if anything to document this, but I remember having a meeting with the heads of all the fraternities. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the sororities, I think I really focused on the fraternities, to talk about, um, we call it a late night, which is basically uh, weeknight parties, where there was alcohol and it was a big thing about, I mean, it's a, we call it late night. So usually it was like Thursday nights, but sometimes it could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. People would have keggers basically. Yeah. And, you know, usually it would go till midnight, sometimes a little bit later. And um, and that had become a thing where there were incidents and there was, you know, constantly issues with campus safety. There was, you know, issues with, you know, date rate, date rate drugs. 
so I can't remember what I had like laid out but I think I had like a few points a few things that I kind of had like tacit agreement that like the Greeks would go for like a shift in like some policy about how late night happened and like I think maybe even limiting like like uh, rush time and like some like some structural changes that I thought would make would move towards making Greek life healthier right. on campus. And again, I kind of had like, oh, that sounds cool, Russell, but like no one took action. Like no one, no, right then. I really needed, because I was getting ready to graduate, I really needed the administration to grab it and run with it. And like no one, you know, no one, I was trying to be a, kind of a bridge to like a different, a different future for that, for that part of our our social life, which really, you know, drove social life. And, and don't get me wrong, I had a lot of friends in the frat. I was student government president. I'd be in line to get into these parties. Russ, why are you in line? Like come into the front, come on in, you know, and I grabbed a few yeah. friends and we'd go in and we had fun. Like, um, but I knew the culture overall was toxic. Um, yeah. And I was, you know, so it was, it was you know, a dichotomy where I enjoyed the, the, enjoyed the parties and the beer and hanging out, but also understood that there was this downside to it. And what I came to later understand is because I was student government president, there was a lot of things that would go on in those houses that people would deliberately shield me from when I was there. Sure. That was a whole part of my experience too, was really understanding and knowing women who were friends of mine who either I knew they had been assaulted or their or their roommates or whatever had been people I didn't know quite as well had been assaulted or or you know, one young lady was in a classroom who was literally being stalked around campus by another kid and for some reason they weren't kicking him out and I never understood it. I mean, so it was all these things. I would go talk to the dean like I have this young lady. Do you know? And I kind of meet with the deans regularly. Right? I'm like we're aware of it. That's all they could tell me is we're aware of it. You know. Right. And so but then you still know what's happening. And so it's hard. And I don't you know. I know there's been. You know, Obama administration had improved Tower Nine, and I think Biden too. I don't know what happened, you know, anything during the Trump administration or not. But like, I know the governments were trying to do things to make schools healthier. But in terms of what's happened to Trinity, you know, I don't know. It doesn't sound like there's been much improvement. Yeah, I yeah, especially with the pandemic now, there's a very like different structures in terms of like frat parties. Like, I know a lot of girls who are like, they don't want to come out and speak about their own sexual assault experiences anymore because then everyone's upset with them because the parties are getting shut down because of COVID, you know, and everything. And so they become a victim two and three times. Yeah. Because they just, because they speak out or they have to just swallow it. And that's right. Exactly. And that's, you know, Trinity's not unique in that in terms of our culture um, about, you know, that happening. Overall, my discussion with Russell went very well. It was very interesting to learn from someone who had orchestrated a protest at Trinity as a student. It was also great to connect with a former student from Trinity and see what parts of Trinity withstood time and what parts of Trinity did not. Thanks again for listening to another episode.